Today's scripture reading comes from the book of Acts, chapter 7 and 8. If you would please stand in honor of God's word. And the high priest said, Are these things so? And Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, and said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred, and go into the land that I will show you. And after this, and after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him, and rescued him out of all his afflictions, and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel, who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and, in all the Red, and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for forty years. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days, and offered a sacrifice to the idol, and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it, according to the pattern that he had seen. So it was until the day of David, who found favor in the sight of God, and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. The word of the Lord. 
Well, if you have an extra $50,000 burning a hole in your pocket, you can now buy one of Gandhi's original letters that recently went up for sale. What makes this letter so uh, unique and expensive is the fact that it's the only letter known where he actually mentions anything about Jesus. He doesn't say a lot, but this is what he says. He says, I have not been able to move beyond the belief that Jesus was one of the great teachers of mankind. Do you not think that religious unity is to be had not by some mechanical subscription to a common creed, but by everyone respecting the creed of each. I think his message of tolerance is as important now as it was back then. Now I could think of a number of responses to Gandhi's claim about who Jesus is, but that's really not my point. What I'd like to point out is this. Isn't it remarkable how when Gandhi talks about Jesus, Jesus sounds a lot like Gandhi? sharing in the same values and opinions as he does, and thoughts about what is wrong with the world. It's another example of how one can transform Jesus into their own image, boiling him down into something that's just an expression of their own desires and their own values. And we don't have to look very far because we see it all the time. People transform Jesus into something self-made. And it shouldn't surprise us because we see it all throughout the scriptures. And we even see it in the book of Acts. The Jewish leaders all thought they were the true people of God. But in reality, they had become a self-made people with a self-made religion, worshiping a self-made God. They had become a people of their own making. And I think we should ask ourselves this morning, how do we know that we haven't done the same thing? How do we know that we worship Jesus as he is and not the Jesus that we want him to be? How do we know that we are the people of God? And up until this point, this has been... Uh, up until this point in the book of Acts, this has been Luke's desire, what he wants to show us. He's tried to show us the difference between this new people being led by the apostles and the Jewish establishment, showing us the difference between these two people that both claim to be the true people of God. And as we consider Acts 7 this morning, I want us to see the difference between being a self-made people versus being a spirit-filled people. And as we pick up the story where we left off last week, Stephen has been arrested. He's been falsely accused of blasphemy, and now he is standing on trial before the Jewish religious establishment. And in Stephen's response, it's a very long response. It's the longest recorded speech in the book of Acts. And even though he uses a lot of words, his point is very simple. He uses the stories of Abraham, of Joseph, and Moses to show us exactly what a self-made people look like and what the Jews had become. And he uses these stories to point out three things, that the Jews had become elitist, they'd become oppressors, and they'd become isolationists. They'd become elitist, oppressors, and isolationists. And as I go through these very quickly, we'll start with verse 2 and how they were elitist. Stephen starts off by saying, Do you not remember how Abraham was uh, called by God when God appeared to him while he was still living in Mesopotamia? what's Stephen doing? Well, quite simply, the Jews and the Jewish elite in particular hated Gentiles. They hated any non-Jew and looked down upon them with the snobbery and an elitism and with utter disdain. And so Stephen is pointing out to them and reminding them that Abraham, their father, the father of their faith, was a Gentile. He was born a Chaldean. He wasn't born a Jew. He was born in Babylon. And God comes to Abraham and uses him to form a new people that are born out of his grace to be a blessing to the world. 
Stephen's saying, look, this whole thing got started because God went to a Gentile and loved them, invited them into relationship with him. And you use that same God to justify your hatred of the very world that God would have you love and care for. You're elitist. Then he moves on into verse 9, telling the story of Joseph, who had the dream that he would rise to power over and against all of his 12 older brothers. But his brothers were jealous, and they sold him off to slavery in Egypt. And Stephen is using this story to highlight the fact that the Jewish leaders were guilty of the same thing. They were guilty of one of the most common failures and sins of Israel all throughout its history in the Old Testament, is that out of their jealousy, they would, they would oppress the poor, the weak, and the vulnerable among them for their own benefit. We just spent an entire series in the book of Amos where they are jealous to be like the other nations. And so for their own benefit, they take advantage of the poor and the vulnerable. In Mark 15, 10, it says that the religious elite, the Pharisees and Sadducees, the very people present out of jealousy, turned Jesus over to Pilate. Acts 4, it said that the high priest out of jealousy arrested Peter and John and threw them in prison. He's telling them that they are a people that are consumed with their own lust for power. And out of that, they have become oppressors. And so how is it they can claim to be the people of God when out of their jealousy, they oppress the poor and weak and vulnerable among them, the very people that God would have them in his law protect and care for? And then lastly, in the story of Moses, Stephen highlights their isolation from the rest of the world. At this time in Jewish culture, the Jewish elite essentially were waiting on God to once again make Israel the most powerful nation in the world. They thought that what God wanted was for Israel to once again be the most powerful nation in the world and to hold power over every other nation in the world. And they thought that the way that they could make this happen is that if they were obedient to the law, then they, of course, would gain God's favor and God would have to bless them, send the Messiah to raise Israel to be the greatest nation on earth once again. But Stephen is pointing out that all they're doing is simply wanting to hold God prisoner in the temple so that he would accomplish purposes and plans of their own making. And he points out very clearly to the Jewish elite that just like Israel waiting in the wilderness for Moses to come down from Mount Sinai and they made the golden calf, that the Jewish leaders have done the same thing. That is, they have been waiting on God they are simply serving a golden calf God that's a work of their own hands. And the God they think they serve isn't who they really serve, so much so that when Jesus actually comes, God himself, they kill him. So he's showing them in all of this, in their elitism, their oppression of the poor and the vulnerable, and in their isolation from the rest of the world, that these are all just expressions of how they had become a completely self-made people because everything they wanted for themselves was the complete opposite of what God wanted them to be. When God showed up, they killed him because they didn't want him to otherwise interfere with their self-made religion. They're guilty of the same sins as their fathers before them that killed every prophet that came their way because quite frankly, they weren't interested in a God that wanted to go out to the world. I think it's important that we consider Stephen's charge against the religious elite because, quite frankly, in my view and in my opinion, I think the church in our time and in our place has a lot more in common with Stephen's audience than with Stephen himself. 
we see the same elitism, the same oppression and ignoring the poor, the needy, and the vulnerable. We see the same isolation from the world as people wait upon God to bless their purposes and their plans instead of being devoted to his purposes and his plans. And quite frankly, I think we have a church in our time and place that's just as disinterested in a God that wants to go out to the world as we see with the Jewish elite. We see a church that treats the Great Commission like it was simply the Great Suggestion. And when that happens, there you will find self-made religion. Because it takes what is most valuable to Jesus Christ and it replaces it with something else that they consider to be far more important. So what do we see around us? We see Jesus hijacked all the time for all sorts of ways and for all sorts of purposes and ideals and values. We see Jesus the Republican. We see Jesus the Democrat. Jesus the Socialist. We see a church more concerned about politics than people. We see a church that shows far more allegiance to politicians and presidents and political figures than to a resurrected Savior. We see churches that isolate themselves behind their doors, protecting their pet doctrines, and then they slowly close because they realize nobody cares. We see churches isolating themselves because they're waiting for that next charismatic experience that's never going to come. We see churches that let the mouths of the hungry go hungry because they get in the way of marketing budgets. We see churches that would rather fill seats and save souls. If we took a hard look, we'd realize that even though it might be inadvertent, the church in our time and in our place is just as segregated by race, income, and social status as the rest of the world around us with no intention of doing anything about it. Because quite frankly, I think we're far more defined by the desires and divisions of our culture than by the values of Christ who would have us go out to every tribe, tongue, and nation. And I think this is why we need the book of Acts. Because just like the Jewish elite, it should scare us a little bit to think that the religion that we practice in the end doesn't have anything in common with the God that we think we're serving. We need the book of Acts to not just warn us of what we can become, but to remind us of who we're called to be. A spirit-filled, great commission people that take the story of Jesus Christ out to a world that desperately needs it. It's the very command that Jesus left us with. The very work with which he would have us do, and we have to ask ourselves, are we doing it? Is what's valuable to him valuable to us? Are we self-made or are we spirit-filled? So as we consider, what is it actually that, self, that a spirit-filled people look like? Acts has been telling us all along that a spirit-filled people tell the Jesus story in two ways. A spirit-filled people share in the sufferings of Christ, and they share in the compassion of Christ. And as we consider suffering for a second, it's common to think of suffering for Christ simply as being the hardship that comes from persecution. That's a part of it, but that is way too narrow. What the Bible would have us understand is that sharing in Christ's sufferings is that we would willingly sacrifice for the sake of another. Think about Jesus' first act of suffering. What was it? Well, it wasn't the cross. It wasn't the temptation. It was the moment in which Christ laid aside his eternal power and glory, stepped off his throne, took on flesh, and became a baby for your sake, for my sake, for our sake. In Philippians 2, Paul would say that Christ emptied himself and became a servant for mankind. And right after Pentecost, do we not see the Spirit of God creating the same kind of people that look just like Jesus? 
in Acts 2 and 4. Luke goes to great lengths to show us what this new kind of people look like. He goes to great lengths to describe their sacrificial lives for one another and for the sake of the world around them. Remember what he says, that there was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses, sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. They weren't laying these gifts at the apostles' feet because they were in the middle of a, build, of a building campaign. This this was a sacrificial offering for the needs of the poor and the needy and anyone that had need. We see a church constantly throughout the book of Acts emptying themselves and telling that Jesus story by sharing in his sufferings for the sake of one another. And of course, as they told the Jesus story, there were those that hated it. And so they too suffered from the persecution from those that hated them. Stephen gives us a picture of what it means to share in the compassion of Christ. He's drug outside the city to be executed, just like Jesus. And as they were stoning him, he also, like Jesus, echoes his final words when he was on the cross. As they were stoning him, he says, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. My goodness, what compassion. Compassion that Stephen, even at his death, would plead God's mercy and grace for the very people that the world would say he had every right to hate. Acts shows us a spirit-filled people that are not driven by the desires or the divisions of a surrounding culture, but are committed to the values and the mission of Christ. And Luke would have us see in this moment at Stephen's death that this is the beginning of the Great Commission. This is the start of the Great Commission as the church is pushed out through suffering and persecution into Judea and to Samaria, the very place that Jesus called them to go. But he would also have us recognize that now as the church goes out, it is because of Stephen's sacrifice that he shares in the suffering and compassion of Christ and making it very clear that as the church goes out, this is what the church will be built upon. When people, everyday, normal people like Stephen, like you, like me, like us together, share in Christ's sufferings and compassion, and then we see the church explode into the world around it. This is what the church will be built upon. It's not just about the Spirit filling 12 apostles. It's about the Spirit filling God's people, all of them becoming a sacrificing, suffering, compassionate people, everyday people, like Stephen, you, and me, and Jim Steele. Last week, we told you the story about Jim Steele. What does it mean to be a spirit-filled people wrestling with what it means to be a Christian in, our, in, in, in any time and any place? Jim Steele was a, a Scot, third-generation Scottish farmer living in Zimbabwe, if you remember. And he went through the transition of power from whenever Zimbabwe gained its independence from European rule. There was a few years of, of blessing, about a decade, where things went really well. And then all of a sudden, President Robert Mugawe began to fall into a tyrannical dictatorship. And he fed a race war between whites and blacks as he tried to gain more power. And it became violent and deadly. And one of the things the government did is no longer recognize the land rights of white farm or white landowners of which Jim Steele was one. So Jim Steele knew that it was inevitable that his land would be taken and there was nothing he could do about it. And so every morning he would get up on his balcony and he would look out over his land and he would just wait for the black farmers to come, lay claim to his land and begin to farm what he felt was his. 
And as they began to come one by one and set up their huts and begin to farm his land, he said he had a burning hatred that began to fill his heart. Hatred towards the government, the country, the black farmers. But that wasn't it. Each and every day, as he felt that hatred, he kept asking God as he prayed, God, what would you have me do? How do I be a Christian in all of this? God, what would you have me do? And one day he goes to Paul Naganway, if you remember, who is the black pastor he suggested be the pastor of his white church so that their church could be both white and black in a time in which the, the country wanted to separate the two. And he went to Paul and he said, Paul, I have no idea how to be a Christian and all this, and I have all this anger and all this rage, and I don't know what to do. What should I do? And he just said, Paul, what is it that you want for our church? What do you want? What do you want our church to become? And Paul said, quite simply, he said, I want us to be a church that gives food and medicine and spiritual support to AIDS victims. I want to give sewing machines to the jobless. I want to provide tuition for poor children. And I want to extend the church of Jesus Christ to where there is the greatest need. And Paul's vision gave Jim Steele perhaps a vision of his own. And it inspired him to consider what it meant to be a Christian in this place in this time of incredible division. And one day him and Paul were walking in what formerly was his land and he sees all the black farmers working his land and he realizes, like we said last week, that he didn't, he didn't know any of the Shona people. He never talked with any of them. And yet he felt this burning hatred towards them. And he realized that maybe he ought to go talk to them. So as he went to go talk to them, he heard their stories and he heard what their needs and their struggles were. And he started a new conversation. And he realized in the midst of that that, quite frankly, there wasn't that much that divided the two of them because they were pawns in the same game. As the, the government tried to gain more power, all it did was allow these farmers to take the land and work the land and get it to where it actually has a harvest so that the Zimbabwean generals can come and lay claim to all of the land. And hey, what do you know? You've already got people to work the land. They're just as powerless. The pawns in the same game, and his heart went out to him. And a few nights later... Him and his wife both woke up at the same time, and he said he felt the Spirit of God descend in his room. And he turned to his wife, and he said, Emmanuel, sweetie, God is with us. So they got on the side of their bed, and they prayed all night one prayer. Lord, show us what you would have us do. Show us what you would have us do. And by the time the morning came, they knew exactly what it was they were supposed to do. So over the next year, Jim Steele took his tractor and plowed every single portion of the land that the, farmer, that the black farmers were farming. He took all of his old buildings that he owned on his land and converted them into a school so that over 300 children could go to school for free. He started buying medicine and vaccines and inoculations for the poor farmers, and he saved over 100 lives within the first year. And he started buying seed and gasoline for his own money in a time of high inflation to give it to the farmers. And as he was doing this, he said he felt this desire to do more and more and more that began to consume him. He had this desire to do more, and so he finally continued to pray. He said, God, is there more that I could be doing? Is there more that I could do for these people? Show me what you would have me do. Then he realized there was far more that he could do. And so then the next day, he went out and he started asking every single one of the black farmers if they would like to come to church with him. And in this time and in this culture, they all thought he was crazy. Then a few of them started to come. And he would greet them warmly in his all-white church, Loma Gundi Presbyterian Church. And he would greet them, and he would have them sit next to him. And some of the white 
parishioners had a hard time with. They said, Jim, you know what you're doing? This is, you're going to get us in trouble. And Jim would simply say every time, he says, the great commandment tells me to love my neighbor, but it doesn't tell me I get to decide who my neighbor is. And as this went on for some time, the uh, authorities took notice of Jim. And obviously they didn't like it. So one night he was arrested along with 25 other white farmers in the area on completely trumped up false charges of rioting. And so they wanted to use these white farmers as an example to try and get them to act out so that they could basically fight back against them. And then the government would use it as a propaganda story to say, look, see, this is why we need to kick white people out. This is why we need racial division. We need a black Zimbabwe, so on and so forth. The machine goes on. So they all went into prison. And on the third day, they were transferred out of the local jail to a long-term all-black prison facility with violent and nonviolent offenders. And they were thrown into an eight by 12 cell with 36 men sleeping in each one. And the first two days, as all the white men would gather together, they would ask Jim, Um Jim, Uncle Jim. They'd say, Um Jim, what's going to happen to us? What's going to happen to us? And Jim kept saying, I don't know. I don't know. And Jim had no idea what was going to happen to him. And on the second night they were in that prison, they were laying body to body to body. And Jim found himself praying once again, Lord, what would you have me do? What would you have me do? And then that same question got asked from another cell across the prison. Um, Jim, what's going to happen to us? But it was the voice of one of the Shona. He said he felt like God told, God's, God's spirit just impressed upon him, preach. So Jim started preaching in the pitch black of the prison. And then he prayed and said, amen. And then there was complete silence. He woke up the next day with the same compulsion to preach. So he went out into the courtyard, started preaching. And by the end of his 30-minute sermon, he had, a congr- he, had a, he had a little congregation that was half white and half black. And then two of the black prisoners that were Malawian came up and they said, tonight if you preach again, whenever we all go to bed, we'd like to sing some songs for you before you preach. So that night... When the lights went out and it was pitch black, these two men started to sing Christian hymns in their own language. And Jim said that the spirit once again fell in that prison. But he said he felt as though he wasn't supposed to preach, he was supposed to wait. And when they got done singing, he sat there and they all waited in silence. And then all throughout the prison, in the pitch black, men started to confess their sins. Randomly. Out of nowhere. I'm a murderer. I'm a sodomizer, I killed my brother, I killed my wife, I stole from my neighbor. They were confessing the most heinous sins you could possibly imagine and they were begging God in their tears for forgiveness. And then Jim preached and talked about the forgiveness of Christ. And then he prayed and they all said amen. And they went to sleep. The same thing happened for the next 11 nights where they all would gather together, they would sing, they would confess their sins in the pitch black, and men in their tears would ask God for forgiveness, and Jim would preach about the compassion and forgiveness of Jesus. Eleven nights in a row, and then, because of this racial unity that was happening, the authorities didn't like it very much. So the next day, they came trying to instigate the white farmers to riot, and so they said, we, because of your lice, we are going to shave your heads, which would have been very shameful for the white farmers. And since they were expecting them to actually... Uh, riot, they they really didn't, because as they started to, some of them started to get frustrated, but Jim said, brothers, peace. Like a sheep led to the slaughter, peace. Let them shave our heads. 
And the officers weren't expecting this at all. They had clubs in their hands because they were expecting to be able to beat the white prisoners, but they weren't expecting them to completely go along with it. And they realized that they were unprepared because nobody actually brought any hair clippers. And so what they had to do is, to save face, they had to go find hair clippers. And so four hours later, they came back. But then they realized, since they said it was because of lice, they had to save face. So they shaved the heads of all the prisoners in the entire prison, both black and white. And as these frustrated officers are shaving all of their heads, all of the prisoners, black and white, are hysterically laughing together at how this whole situation had worked out. And then later that night, more of the same. The Malawian men sing their songs, and all the men cry out, confessing their sins. Jim would preach, and then they would sit in silence. And there was one man from the other side of the prison that called out and broke the silence as they were getting ready to sleep. And he said, Um, Jim, is there any light for us at the end of the tunnel? And Jim said, yes, there is light, and I see it. And he said, the truth will set you free. And then the prisoner just responded and said, you think you could get Jesus to turn that light up a little bit? <laughs> and he said, all of the men in the prison just laughed hysterically together in the pitch black as brothers, as a family, as a church. And when the laughter died down, they heard a voice out in the hallway say, very good. It was the voice of the warden. And the next morning out in the courtyard, they took Jim and the white farmers and they actually released them in the general population with the violent offenders, which was completely illegal. And Jim thought, this is it. We're dead. This is the end. And the warden came in with all of the officers and he had the officers sit down and all the prisoners sit down. And then he walked up to Jim and he said, you stand up. And Jim stood up and, and the warden said, preach. So he started to preach over and over again. And all the men came confessing their sins and repenting. And it turns out that the warden had been sitting there each night listening to their little prayer service, their little church hold its worship service. And as a result of all of this racial harmony, the authorities realized that everything is going the complete opposite of how they wanted it to go. This was not feeding their race war. This was not feeding their culture war. And so the only reason their warden now is becoming a Christian, along with the officers that are supposed to be feeding it. And they realized there's nothing they could do. And the only way they could stop it was to free the white farmers and give them bail. And they went back out into a world in which it was just as divided, racially chaotic, the government wanting to feed a race war. And as churches, white churches continued to close their doors because they didn't know how to exist in this climate, there was one church that didn't. Loma Gundy Presbyterian Church told a different story. Because as Jim came back into his church, his church began more and more and more to look just like it looked inside that prison as black and white began to worship together. And the way it looked, he would describe, you could figure out how his church looked by looking at its worship team. It was a white woman on an acoustic guitar and two black men on a djembe and an out-of-tune piano. And they continued to tell the Jesus story. The book of Acts, quite frankly, has uh, stirred my heart, making me think of questions, what of us? What of our church? self-made or spirit-filled? How might we become a people that are filled with the Spirit? How might we share in the sufferings of Christ and in His compassion in our place and in our time? How do we tell the Jesus story? And I kept coming back to the story of Jim Steele that he prayed and the, what he prayed over and over and over again. He prayed, Lord, show me what you would have me do. Show me what you would have me do. 
And I realized, my goodness, that question, not only Jim Steele asked in his time and place, but the, the church in Acts asked that same question over and over again all throughout the book of Acts, whenever they're waiting for the Spirit and they replace Judas with Matthias. Whenever at Pentecost the people receive Jesus, they say, what should we do? What should we do? Whenever Peter and John are arrested and then released, they ask, Lord, what would you have us do? Give us boldness. They ask that question over and over again. And my goodness, that question is it. That is the question that divides a self-made people from a spirit-filled people. Because it's when we, when we begin to ask that question, Lord, what would you have us do? That's when we begin to shed any notion of self-made religion and what we think we ought to be. And we begin to go to God and ask, what would you have us be? How might we be the people that you have called us to be? So how might we be the people that God has called us to be in our place and time? If you look at where we're at, on one side of our church, we have the, one of the nicest, wealth, wealthiest houses you can find in Rockwall. We have one of the most desirable neighborhoods to live in. On the other side, we have Section 8 housing. On one side, we have predominantly white and wealthy. And on the other side, we have predominantly black and struggling to make rent. Quite frankly, we live in a culture and a time and place in which I think our, our culture would just have us point fingers at one another and isolate ourselves. But I think we need to start a different conversation. I think we need to start the conversation that Christ would have us. I think it's time, like Jim Steele, we just say, maybe we should just go talk to him. So here's what we're going to do. Next Sunday, I'm meeting with our service coordinators. And I'm going to ask them to begin to put a process in place by which they would mobilize our community groups to gather together. And sometime this spring, we're going to map out the entire, all the streets around our church. And we're going to go door to door. And we're going to invite them into a block party in our backyard where we're going to pass out free barbecue and have the biggest bounce house that money can buy. And maybe we'll have helping hands show up and we can do a food drive and a clothing drive. And then there's a church, there's two black churches and there's a Hispanic church on the other side of downtown and we can go to them and ask them if they would want to participate with us seeking to go out into our community and sacrificially see what needs we might meet together. How can we tell a different story? And honestly, we've stopped off at those churches a few times during the week, but nobody's there, and it's most likely because those churches are too poor to have a full-time pastor, and so he's bivocational, so he's working all week. So sometime this spring, there's going to be a couple services where maybe I'm not here or Ryan's not here, because the only way we can talk to them really is to go and worship with them on a Sunday morning and reach out to them and see if they would want to be a part of together reaching the needs of this community. Because I'm just like Jim Steele. I don't know any of them. Perhaps something beautiful could be started by just simply saying, maybe we ought to go talk to them. And it may completely fail because it's hard in our culture and our place to think about how to be a united people, how to be a church that steps out into the brokenness of the world and isn't driven by the culture's concerns and values of our culture. And it may completely fail, but it might not. It might be the, beautiful, might be the beginning of something that's far more beautiful than we could have ever imagined. But whatever future we have as a church, might we be willing to step into the places where the Spirit promises to work? And whatever future we have as a church, might we be willing to boldly step into the sufferings of Christ and in his compassion? And might we be a people that ask the question, Lord, what would you have us do in our place and in our time? And as we do, might we, might we fully know what it means to be a people that are filled with the Spirit? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come to you this morning and we ask that 
you would shake us of the ways that we often would be self-made, of the ways that we prioritize things that you don't particularly care about, of the ways that our priorities get offset, the way we use you to promote our own values, the way we choose which of your commands to follow or not follow, how much to give, how much not to give. Remind us that you are the Savior that gave everything to us and you ask us to give you everything in return. It's hard in our time and in our place to think about how we could be a people that tell the Jesus story. The culture is so loud around us, but we trust that your voice is even louder. And we trust that no matter how loud it gets, that in the end, everything else will fall before you, every tribe, every tongue, and every nation. We ask that you would make us a church that is committed to that work. We ask all this in your precious name, and everybody said, Amen. Amen.